now that they've made their appropriate entrance. <laughs> we can begin. <laughs> he, yeah, Gil said we've already started. So. <laughs> So as uh, I said in the opening, I had just returned from the three-month course at the Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast. And there we do question and answers in the morning as we do here. And there was one yogi who asked a question one morning, and he had been there for probably about uh, 10 weeks something like that, you know, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And so he asked the question, he said he was noticing that in his experience, it was becoming rather familiar. And he said, even a bit repetitive. (laughs) And he summed it up as their thoughts, there's pain, and there's stewed prunes. And it just goes on like this, you know, on like this. And he wanted to know if there was some way to freshen up his experience, (laughs) to sort of brighten things up because it was getting, you know, a little... (laughs) It made me uh, think of the movie Groundhog Day, you know, where sometimes our life can begin to feel like that. It's like it's just kind of the same thing over and over and over again. We can, and, and it can bring about a kind of a, a sometimes an inner dullness or a little bit of a boredom and maybe some uh, tedium. You know, this kind of like just having to go through the motions again and again. So it was actually a very good question, you know, that both that he was noticing that in his experience, but also that he was really interested in changing that so that there perhaps was a way to feel more fresh or bright in his experience. And it's really a very beautiful intention, I think, uh, for us to want to freshen things up. And that's actually what I'd like to explore a little bit in this talk of, of uh, in regards to what the Buddha talked about, how, what it really means to freshen up, to brighten up our experience in that way. But I think that, you know, in some ways, when we invite that refresh, refreshing, when we have the intention for that, sometimes I wonder if we really know what we're asking for, if we really know what we're truly inviting in, as beautiful as a wish or a longing that is, what that is, what does it really require for us? to really live in this fresh and bright way. Because I think that really what the invitation is asking for, and also what these teachings point to, is really letting go of everything that's familiar to us. Letting go of everything that we know we take to be true from our memory, from the past, from our conditioning, leaving it all behind, not carrying that, uh, the past into the present moment, leaving it all behind. And it really means, if we're leaving behind what's familiar and known, it means that we are entering into what's unfamiliar and unknown. That's really what this invitation is about. And my experience is that most people want to avoid this at all costs. They do everything they possibly can to not leave their comfort and their security and uh, the familiar uh, uh, way that kind of holds us, a sense of holds us together and gives us some sense of security and and, uh, ease. This old adage of don't rock the boat, you know, don't do anything that's going to rock the boat. 
But yet at the same time, then we have, sometimes we have this kind of dull or agitated or somewhat tense or unhappy kind of feeling. And we, we don't know how, why this is here, how we get caught here. You know, it's a little bit of a dichotomy, that longing to want some peace or rest or coming to the end of that to feel more ease and contentment, happiness, but at the same time, maybe not fully aware of what's required for us to know that experience deeply. I've been teaching uh, beginning classes here at Spirit Rock for some time, and when I began in the early years teaching beginning classes, I really didn't know. I really didn't have so much of a sense of what I was asking people to do. You know, I was just saying, okay, we're learning how to be mindful and, you know, the, eight, the, uh, the four noble truths, uh, the truth of um, their suffering and then the letting go of the causes and conditions that give rise to suffering. You know, just kind of, these are the Buddhist teachings. But then the realization of really what's required for us to come to a place of more freedom in ourselves. And I have so much appreciation now for what I'm really beginning to ask people when I, go, when I begin these classes. And I don't take it for granted in the same way that I have in the past. And, you know, there's a pretty large attrition rate in those classes, actually. You know, <laughs> we, <laughs> we can start sometimes down, down in the community hall. We can start with about 45 people, and I'm lucky if I end up with 20, you know, at the end. It's just, it's, it's a, it's very, this is very demanding, this practice of letting go. It really requires, I think, in some way, a very direct confrontation with what's true and real here and now. And, and that's hard sometimes. It's really hard to be fully with that reality of what's true in our mind, in our body, in our experience, in our life, our reality. It's like, ah, oh, no, please. You know, just, I want to turn on TV. You know, go to a movie. Let's forget it for a while. Which is okay. It's okay to do that. But let's really examine this a little bit more. I think coming here to a retreat such as this really, in a way, is saying, I'm going to leave the familiar and the known for a little while. I'll leave my comfort zone. And yet, it's sometimes when I, when I refer to retreat as leaving our comfort zone, a lot of people actually say, you know, it's very comfortable here. Um, it's in some, some ways more comfortable than it is back home, you know. I get three meals cooked for me a day, you know. I don't really have to clean my room, my house in the same way. You know, people are kind to me. I don't have to do anything very much. You know, this kind of, and that's true. It's all really true. But I think that at a, at a, uh, uh, more, in a more real way, we're going deeper than that really looking at what it means to let go, what it really means to let go. So the structure here is set up in a way that so much is taken away. So much of your usual distractions and responsibilities, uh, things that you get involved with and busy with and engaged with, it's all taken away. Even, you know, cell phones and TVs and radios and and computers, emails, I mean, thank God, you know, in some ways, you know. But in the same way, we're really left with ourselves, just left with ourselves here. So a lot is taken away. A kind of renunciation coming here is an act of renunciation already, just by being here itself. And it's generally challenging because most people, most human beings, have an addiction to some stimulation, to the pleasure, kind of the pleasurable feeling that can come through those different activities that we get involved in. And, and that, that's sort of that uh, a kind of a craving for the pleasure to have a, a, a feeling, a good feeling experience. And we can see how that translates when we come here on retreat and in our meditations where we want our, our meditation to feel good. 
You know, there's this the kind of um, the way the mind is oriented towards this looking for the pleasure or looking for where the ease is or where the comfort is or where the, 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 the contentment is going to be. And when it's not there, how we can feel this kind of disturbance or this agitation or judgment or um, like something's wrong. Like I have to find a way to get my experience to feel better. And then, of course, when, our, when, our medit- when we feel better, either in a meditation or in the day, it's like, ah, now I'm getting somewhere. And then it changes, right? It doesn't necessarily last as long as we'd like it to last. I mean, not always. Sometimes we're more in a groove. You know, there are certain conditions that are rising, uh, whether it's a time in our life or, or, or a stage in our practice, where we may actually feel we're dropped into a very pleasant and um, uh, satisfying place in our practice, and that happens sometimes. And yet even that is going to change. That's going to change too. And yet so easily we can start to have the idea that now I'm doing it right. Now my meditation is going right. We, 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 the, the conditions of our experience define us in some way. When I feel good, I'm doing good. I'm doing it right. Easy, easy uh, uh, place to arrive at in our meditation. We're so conditioned, really, to go out through our senses towards pleasure, whether it's the sights or the sounds, smells, tastes, touch. We want that, you know? We can feel that uh, uh, kind of inclination or orientation to, to be drawn towards the pleasurable, the, sen- the, the sense pleasures. We can also see how we're drawn through our mind, the mental uh, formations, the, the images, the thoughts. We, we, we can be pulled into our fantasies and our memories and, and the places that feel good and actually even want to hang out there for a while, like, oh, right, I'm going to hang out with this fantasy. This is great. And we could just kind of feel the effect of the, the ongoing pleasure. It's a kind of addiction, you know. And, and, uh, and then it changes. And sometimes when we're feeding our, our uh, thinking in that way, it can change in such a way that it's all of a sudden we're going down a road that isn't actually so pleasurable. It's actually pretty unpleasant. But we don't have the training to know how to turn the mind away because we've been somewhat indulgent for many years of our life. So part of the training is knowing how to work more skillfully with our thoughts. Gil was talking about this somewhat last night. So we don't get caught in the, the, the uh, um, kind of the attachment for the, the pleasurable mind states and then the, more the resistance and the aversion to the more difficult mind states, but, but finding a way more to how can we hold whatever is arising with a, a balanced mind, a balanced attitude, a balanced perception of what's happening. This kind of searching, we get involved with this sort of searching for something, looking for something, searching for something that we think is going to do it for us, give us that that lasting satisfaction. I think a good metaphor for this is, you know, I'm probably not alone in having about a hundred TV channels on on my TV, and sometimes I can, you know, just sit there with the remote control, and just surfing through, you know, different channels, waiting to hit something, you know, that's gonna ah, okay, that's gonna do it, you know, this, and and yet what what often happens with a hundred TV channels i mean how much of it is good anyhow you know how much of it is bringing any pleasure anyhow but yet that kind of that that sense of searching 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 you know you get a sense of that that feeling how the mind wants to turn towards that pleasure a couple years ago 3 or 4 5 years ago i can't remember I did a, um, a, a three-week 
solitary retreat in New Zealand at a place called Temawata, beautiful, beautiful place that I teach at um, every year. And they have some meditation huts that are in the bush, out in the bush. And it was a period of time where nobody was on the land. There were just a couple of uh, the, uh, the women who lived there. And I wanted to, I've never done like a solitary where they didn't have any contact with any other people and really in, in nature. And I really wanted to get a sense of what that was like since that was actually uh, what, what people were doing during the time of the Buddha is going out into nature and you're sitting at the root of the tree and meditating without really any, very little contact with, with other people, of course, getting the, the food. And so somebody was bringing, once a week, would, I'd write a little grocery list, and then my groceries would appear on the, on the veranda. And I had to be sure to get them really quickly before the uh, possums and the raccoons and other creatures would get them. So I was there for this period of three weeks, and I guess I didn't realize how hard it was going to be, this kind of solitude. It was just to have, to have no stimulation. Even in the, you know, even here you, ha- you can, you know, see other people, you're getting Dharma talks, you know, instructions, interviews, you know, nothing. No, no contact of any kind. And I, I found it was very hard to keep my, my mind uplifted, to keep kind of some sense of ah, kind of a, a contentment. I really got pulled down into this kind of, oh, wow, there's nothing. And there was this one bird, it's called a tui bird. I don't know if so many people have been in New Zealand. There's this incredible little, it's about just about three-inch little green bird. And I was in, kind of down in a valley in the bush, and there were hills up, uh, up, up above. And, and my my hut was down here down in the valley and what what started to happen this tui bird has the most exquisite song the most beautiful melodic kind of uh, so much variety diversity in its tune and it would i would wait for it to sing it was like it was the oh it was the only thing i had was the tui bird and I would just, my, my ears were just sort of pricked for this, waiting for this sound. And then when, it, when the bird, and it would echo through the whole valley, and it would just be like this orchestra. It was really quite, this tui bird is such an amazing bird. And I would, I would, when I would hear, I was so attuned for the sound that I would go right out onto the veranda and just, ah, you know, breathe and listen to the bird. It was just, and then of course it would go away as all things do. But I noticed then how, how just the, that need, especially when the resources aren't very strong within us, just something that's going to uplift, something from the outside, something that's going to support. And of course, that's beautiful and we need that. And sometimes we don't have the capacity to strip everything away in that way that I did at that time, and so and so that that the the contact with other people or with Dharma talks or books or or the food or the the, the nature the the sounds I mean that's it it's all part of what 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 supports us and helps us as we are walking this path of renunciation and letting go. So I could really sense that, yeah, that's, that not only is there that, that need, but it was also um, uh, just really showing me how important it was as well to have that kind of holding there. So this searching, kind of searching, searching for pleasure, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a searching for some kind of deep rest, you know, some way we can finally just ah, that big out breath and let it all go, put it down, this peace, finding this place of peace, finding this place of rest. And it's interesting that we do long for this. It seems that every human being, every living being kind of longs for this kind of rest. 
Because, so there must be some kind of inner knowing that it's possible. Why would, we, why would there be this longing for it if we didn't know that it was inherent somehow for us? If it was, maybe there's a, already even a whisper of it here now. Maybe we already hear a kind of calling or a kind of aroma of that peace. And so we, we want that. We want that, but it seems that we don't actually know where to look. We get confused. We, we look in the wrong places. We seem to think that it has something to do with the conditions, either the conditions of our mind, of our body, of our environment, of, our, of where we are. And so we're kind of looking in the wrong place because what we're actually wanting, I think, and not only do I think, but the Buddha says, is not in the conditions. It not, does not live in the conditions of this world, of this mind, of this body. This is from um, a Buddhist text. All things conditioned are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot. Like something borrowed or a city founded on sand, they last a short while only. They are inevitably destroyed like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river. They are conditioned, and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp, which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance like the wind or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble. The sage knows what is true reality and sees all conditioned things as empty and powerless. And yet it's hard for us to, because the conditioning, our conditioning is so strong, it's hard for us to stop the movement of the looking out of the reaching out. It starts when we're very, very young. You know, I can remember when I was 13, 13 years old, when I started longing for different conditions in my life, for me to look different, for uh, everything to be different, my family to be different, my friends to be different. It was like, and I would read books on how to uh, be a better person, all these, all these self-improvement books, and, you know, just try to make things better and try to make things better. And never really appreciating or not really being shown or taught how to appreciate what I already have or who I already was. That wasn't reflected back to me. So there was just this, this uh, reinforcement of the conditioning of looking out, looking out, looking out. How can I change things? How can I do things differently? How could I be this better person, do things right? This strong habit gets started very, very early. But this is not a new problem. You know, we can look right in the Buddhist text, the Buddhist discourses. This is what the Buddha is actually addressing in his teaching, is this, this, this tendency of mind, this orientation of mind to reach out to things, to objects, to conditions, and miss the inherent reality that is right here and now, this place of peace, of rest, that is already right here for us. This is one of the, um, this is from one of the discourses in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. And the Buddha asks this question. He says, how, friends, is their agitation due to clinging? And this is what the Buddha says. He says, here an untaught, ordinary person, 
unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards the body to be self, feelings to be self, perceptions to be self, mental formations to be self, and consciousness to be self. These conditions of mind and body change and become otherwise. With this change of conditions, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of the mind and body. Agitated mental states born of preoccupation with the change arise together and remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is anxious, distressed, and concerned, and due to clinging, he becomes agitated. So clear, you know, so simple. Because we take the mind and the body to be who we are, then we get obsessed with the changing nature. We think that somehow that, that contentment, that what we're looking for, is, has to do in some way of the way this formation is configured. Rather than this, this understanding or this insight into the changing nature and and not just the changing that we see here in our in our mind states and our meditation experiences but what happens when the body starts to change even physically as we get older as we start to get ill as we start to face more of our mortality you know this changing how we how hard that is and then but the and the buddha Buddha points out the opposite, where he says, the well-taught noble disciple who is skilled and disciplined in their dhamma does not regard body to be self, feelings to be self, perceptions to be self, mental formations to be self, and consciousness to be self. When these conditions change, her consciousness does not become preoccupied with the change. Agitated states do not arise, and her mind is not obsessed. Because her mind is not obsessed, she is not anxious, not distressed, concerned, and due to non-clinging, she does not become agitated. It's a lovely, simple teaching. Simple in its teaching, not easy to practice. (laughs) Not easy to practice because that the strength, the force of our conditioning is so strong to look in the wrong place. The confusion that arises around where our happiness lies. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who was the translator of this text, he, in, one, in his comment to this uh, discourse, he sums up the, the discourse, uh, that particular piece in the discourse by saying, agitation comes about because we try to find a permanent refuge in things that are always changing. We try to find something that's permanent, but we can't. So conditions are like, you know, the sand slipping through our fingers. We want to hold on, we want to grasp for something, but we can't. And because we can't, this feeds our anxiety, and then we keep searching, and we get into a kind of a feedback loop. Sound familiar? You know, it's, this is what we call the, the wheel of samsara, this wheel of birth and death. What's the, the birth and the, the dying, the birth and dying? You know, we're caught on that, that wheel. In Pali, there's a word for this. It's called um, the parinama dukkha. Dukkha is this wonderful word for suffering or unsatisfactoriness. And this parinama dukkha, is a particular kind of dukkha. It's, a, it's de- defined as a psychological pain that arises from grasping onto that which is changing. It's very specific. A psychological pain. A psychological pain that feels agitated, feels distressing, and feels obsessed, a little obsessed or concerned with the way things are. We can experience this also as a deeper kind of restlessness, a restlessness in our being. And restlessness is, you know, it's considered one of the five hindrances, 
and um, as something to really understand and be begin to work with and to um, not, be, not, a, not have become an obstacle to our practice. But, you know, it's so easy to judge ourselves when we experience this restlessness or this agitation. But I don't think we really appreciate really how deep this is within our being, this restlessness. You know, it doesn't really go away until very advanced stages of awakening. Now, you, even people who have reached first stage, second stage of enlightenment, it doesn't go away to like very high stages, very the last stage of awakening. My, um, my teachers, Hamid Ali from the Diamond Approach Ridwan School, this is what he, how he describes restlessness. This agitation, this restlessness. He says it's a, it's a contraction in the nervous system. He says it is the specific feeling of suffering. That just resonates so much with me. It's the specific feeling of suffering. It is not just pain or anger or fear. It is an emotional suffering in the purest form. It is the suffering at the core of all human pains. I read this to you because I really want you to appreciate how deep it is. You know, because we, we can say, oh yeah, I should get over this restlessness, you know. It's like I've been practicing, you know, I've been doing this meditation now for 10 years or 20 years and I'm so, still so restless. In fact, I'm more restless. You know, why, what's wrong with me? but we may not understand that we're actually peeling back the layers and we're getting more to the core. We're getting more into the fabric of our being, what, what makes us up in that deepest place of conditioning. And this, we need to feel this. We need to allow this to experience it. We've, in the last few days, we've been speaking about how important it is to actually feel at the, 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 uh, the felt sense, the body of what's happening, our experience. And sometimes we feel this restlessness, this agitation. We can feel it right down in the core, in our belly, in our solar plexus, in our heart area. And the question is, can we feel it without the judgment, without the making ourselves wrong or making our practice wrong? and understanding that this is so integral to our freedom, to the uh, understanding of what, who, who we believe we are, and then the, the, then the releasing of that, the releasing of that idea, the releasing of that, that extra layer of contraction around the restlessness, and beginning to let, let it open unfold and release through the system. This is why it's so, so important really to first accept as much as we possibly can. Well, first to recognize what's happening is always the first step through the mindfulness of recognition of what's happening and then to allow, to accept as much as we can without the judgment, without the ideation around what it means about us. Just like that, this is, this is what's here right now. This is what's showing up right now. Just this, and it feels like this, and it's unpleasant, or it's painful, or it's barely tolerable, or uh, how, whatever it is for you. You see, can I, can I bear it? Can I tolerate it? And sometimes we can't. Sometimes it is too much, so then it's necessary at times then to, to, to move away or maybe even to distract ourselves. You know, the Buddha actually talks about something that's called a skillful distraction, where from a wise uh, understanding we say, if I shouldn't lean or push on this mind state or my experience too much right now, I need to back off. Maybe in this case, going for a walk or going for a cup of tea or, you know, shaking out, doing a little exercise, taking some breaths. You know, not lean in anymore. 
it's okay to do that. So we do that from a place of understanding, a place of wisdom, really being in tune, attuned to our, our sense of capacity, what, what's possible for us right where we are, right where we are, knowing that we're all limited human beings in some way. Everyone here is operating from different, different capacities. And it's really knowing what that is and knowing how we can care for ourselves, depending on what our limitation or capacity is. This is wisdom. This is how we bring a, a wise understanding and a wise response to what's happening for us in our experience. When I was on the uh, three-month course, I, I was really so inspired by many of the people who were practicing on the course because here were people who were in some very, very difficult physical and mental conditions, and yet they, were, they, had, they had so much courage to really sit with themselves, sitting and walking and sitting and walking day after day after day. Some people recovering from surgery, uh, some people dealing with grief and sense of loss uh, for, for people who had died or, or uh, relationships, or people who were in chronic pain who, who really had to work a lot with their, their body and their sitting and lying. Most remarkably, there was a, a man who, uh, uh, 14 months before the retreat, was in a motorcycle accident in India. In fact, he was on his way to the three-month retreat the year before, but was in India and then was hit while he was on a motorcycle and wound up spending, um, I think it was uh, 10, 10 months in the hospital. And he was able to, he was in good enough condition to come to the retreat, the three-month retreat. And he was just starting to walk with his cane. He was just starting to be able to move his body a little bit. And he was the, one of the most inspiring people that I have ever been with because he really, he was in such a state of happiness. He was in really kind of an exalted state of really so happy to be alive, <laughs> so happy to be alive, so happy to be able to walk, so happy to have all of his faculties back together again, so happy to have the Dharma, so happy to be able to be on retreat, to hear the teachings, and, he, and, and the depth of his understanding and his practice, where the conditions of his mind and body didn't seem to be any kind of imposition at all. It was very, very inspiring in, in regards to the way these teachings are presented and what's really possible for us. That do really the question, do we need the conditions of our mind and our body to be different than they are for us to experience depths of happiness and freedom? Do we need There was another woman who had fairly, she, the, the uh, MS was coming pretty strong for her uh, in the last months. And very, very difficult, but there on the retreat. And she was, I was talking with her and she said, you know, for four years I've been wanting my body to be well. But today, she said, I had this realization. Does my, ma- does my body need to be well in order for me to be well? Does my body need to be well in order for me to be well? She says she realized she wants so much more now. She wants so much more than just her body to be well. She sees now that that was such a limited goal for herself. All this effort that she had put into attending to her body. But she said, now I want to be free. I want to open my heart. That's what's important. And it's this realization 
that really helped her to begin to let go, to let go in a way that she really never thought was, her mind just hadn't turned that way. She hadn't considered the possibility, especially when the body, this in her case, the body really degenerating and being quite concerned, obviously quite concerned. And yet something turned, something turned. It's just my body. That's a limited goal to have my body be well. When we open in this way, of course we're going to feel vulnerable. We're going to begin to feel the vulnerability. I think for years I never really understood this in my practice. I was always trying to get some kind of experience where I would feel kind of happy and strong and on top of things and have it all together and, you know, be in charge and, you know, not be uh, uh, the victim to any mind state or any physical state. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that's really what it's about anymore. I see it has much more to do with this opening to, the opening to what is, and the opening to what is brings about a certain vulnerability. And at times even a kind of a fear or, or sometimes a kind of helplessness. This helplessness too, you know, it's a helplessness that sees that the, the ego mind, the ego uh, idea of controlling just doesn't work anymore. You know, this, this idea that I have that I can manipulate and control the conditions of my mind and my body and my life, we just see it doesn't work. And, we, um, and, and, and sometimes we just have to let go. It becomes choiceless for us. We just can't keep going on the way we've gone on in the past. Ajahn Sumedho one of our elders says, you know, this, it, when we open in this way, it can, it can feel like standing under a waterfall, a strong waterfall. You know, and that, that's, that in a lot of uh, strong contact and impressions and, and uh, stimulation and, you know, intensity. Sometimes uh, when we open in this way, this is how it can feel. In fact, there's a, another Pali word for this kind. It's a kind of dukkha, a kind of dukkha, this, this kind of opening and just feeling this. It's called sankara dukkha, sankara dukkha, where we, we feel the oppressive nature of the formations of existence arising and passing and rising and passing and impacting consciousness completely out of our control. And so sometimes when we open to deep meditation states, rather than it being so pleasurable and, you know, kind of like, ah, I've been waiting for this, it's actually like, oh my gosh, it's all arising and passing so quickly and it really is unpleasant. You know, on one three-month course that I did, I, I, I had, um, uh, was doing some concentration practice and about five or six weeks into the retreat, I was very concentrated, my mind was very focused and very unified, and yet the, the arising and passing and rising and passing was so intense that I just felt all this um, agitation in my body, my physical agitation. And it was like having a, a, a thousand ants underneath my skin, you know, and it went on for days and days. Sometimes we have to feel this and know this nature nature of the way things are. It doesn't always, doesn't stay like that, fortunately. We go through different stages, experience of this reality. So we're, we're asked to open as much as we can, just to open to the way things are, to the conditions, mind and body, feelings, perceptions, consciousness, just the way it is. To bow down, you know. I like this, this way of thinking of 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 of, of this is this bowing down to each thing, each thing as it comes, mm-hmm. paying deep respect, honoring each thing that comes. This um, from Rumi. 
If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. Rumi said, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. So this deep respect to the way our unique experience is unfolding, which really in many ways is an acknowledgement of our humanity of our humanness, because we have a mind, we have a body, we have emotions, we have a life. (laughs) There's no way around it. We're human. And so the opening to this waterfall is opening to our human life, opening to our humanity, paying respect to the the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, I'll read something from, um, if I have it here, from Arthur Miller. This is from uh, a play called After the Fall. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. Within a week you're climbing over corpses of children bombed in a subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned each night until I dared not to go to sleep and grew quite ill. I dreamed I had a child, and even in the dream I saw it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away but it always crept onto my lap again, clutched at my clothes, until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life in one's arms. And that's beautiful, too, in taking our life in our arms. It's very much what Gil was speaking about, that, that embrace on the first night, the first night of the opening night, the embracing of ourself, all of ourself, all of our humanity. But are we ready? <laughs> you know, it's a... The invitation is not a light one. Are we ready? And it's fine, you know. The, the Buddha is, is very clear about, you know, if it's something you'd like to do, fine. And if it's not, that's fine too, you know. It's just an offer. The teachings are an offer if it's something that feels compelling in some way. Are you ready? I think I'll end with um, one more poem. This is from um, Pansok Wangil, and um, this is a poem that, it's not actually, yeah, it's a kind of poem that this was sent to me when I was at the three-month course by a friend who, who, who received it. And it's written by... Um, this man who has spent 18 years in solitary confinement in a Chinese prison. It goes like this. At dawn, a beam of the sun steals through the window. At dusk, the sinking Apollo sheds his last tear on the steel door, the star, the light. Heavily locked, the cell becomes colder and sadder. Here I have passed 18 solitary years facing only walls. Summers, winters came and went. Spring flowers and autumn moons hide their face from this place. Yet I am gratified 
for suffering has always been common for great people. To this adversity I am deeply beholden. In hard work and profound thinking I perceived my inspiration. Self and other reveal themselves to me. Everything in this universe is still changing, yet they can't confuse me anymore. I searched for happiness in hardship, and finding it, the hardship I overcame, and to a harvest I can lay claim. Freedom, I lost you in pursuit of you, though without you, I still feel free in my heart. He's using these two, these metaphor, this metaphor of losing his freedom in the prison. I lost you in pursuit of you, trying to find the freedom, though without you, I still feel free in my heart. So remarkable, so inspiring. I feel gratified. This is what's possible for us. Our own kind of confinement here. So I wish you the conditions here being a support for deep insight into the way things are into the nature of reality just as it is. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.